Before Lori White was elected to the Orleans Parish Criminal District Court in New Orleans, she represented inmates serving life sentences at Angola. She saw the men had a lot more to offer than many realize, and those experiences led to her work with creating a program where some Angola lifers provide job training and life skills work for new inmates facing less time. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and on today's episode of ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, Jez White is going to be telling us more about the program. Also, Jez White is one of our 2015 Legal Rebels, an annual feature that looks at innovators who are remaking the legal profession. Judge, can you tell us a bit more about how the Orleans Reentry Court Workforce Development Program works? Yes, yeah, sure will. It was decided that the best way to start a program is to pick the people you put in the program, and that's what I wanted to do with the program. So selecting an individual that's in front of me for sentencing was a great place to start. So you've seen them over the length of time that they've been coming to court, you know, what kind of problems or drug issues they may be dealing with, and you sort of know what kind of offers the state's making for them, and you can figure out, is this person a good candidate? Does this person need uh, to get away from their community? Do they need to do something to get a fresh start? And so that's how, when they would be in a posture to plead guilty, then they could plead guilty to come into the program. Okay. Can you tell me a bit about when you started going to Angola as a lawyer to help some of the lifers with uh, their appeals? I have the impression that you really discovered these men had a lot to offer with a variety of things where for people outside the criminal justice world, they may not realize that someone in Angola who's having a life sentence can really help someone else. Can you tell us a bit about your experiences and getting to know them? Sure. I have been a prosecutor in New Orleans, and I'd been a prosecutor in Baton Rouge, and then I became um, a defense lawyer. And while I was a defense lawyer, I started representing people in post-conviction relief proceedings. And in post-conviction, obviously, they're doing jail time. And in Louisiana, we have the highest incarceration rate of anywhere in the world. And that's what I said, the world. So a life sentence in Louisiana means life. So during my 20 years or so as a, a private lawyer, I ended up handling post-conviction and didn't really know what it was to begin with. So when I managed to pick up a couple of cases with somebody that would pay a little bit of money here or there, and I would go to meet with the client after looking at their paperwork, I was very surprised at, at how knowledgeable they had become about the law and then how knowledgeable they were about maybe what they had done to do their own rehabilitation. And I met several inmates, one of those being Calvin Duncan, another Norris Henderson, who worked in the prison library, and they were super interesting. I was just really overwhelmed with how much I thought rehabilitation they might have done for themselves to be the people that I was meeting. Both of them had been in prison about 20-something years. And the more I got to know them, I ended up um, working on both of their cases, that both of them are now out of prison, uh, and both of them were falsely accused. And I was so surprised, first of all, having been a prosecutor, that people could be falsely accused and convicted, and then to learn that people who had suffered from such an injustice could be so incredibly helpful to other people in prison and not bitter. And both of those gentlemen are now out of prison. We're still friends. Calvin is actually working with me. He's gotten a 
grant to start doing reentry work with me and kind of doing some handholding with my reentry guys from the time they leave the prison until the time they come back for me to monitor them through the court. So I'm surprised and knew that they had more to offer. Now, and you mentioned with both of those men and probably many others you have met, how they had done some of their own rehabilitation work while they were inside. Can you tell me a bit about how at that time inside, they just kind of, they did not give up hope in their situation, and but they also, they, exactly. they found a way to live through it and not, I think you said earlier, not being bitter. That probably was key for their right. ultimate success. Well, but, and I think the other thing for these gentlemen, um, having been falsely accused, I realized they probably didn't need the same rehabilitation as maybe people who had committed crimes and were in prison. So my first thought was, okay, these gentlemen are rehabilitated because maybe they weren't in need of rehabilitation to begin with. But once you're locked up for a length of time, you, you're definitely going to have some issues. And they did not have those type of issues. So then as my, I guess, knowledge and experience base progressed, I saw different men in prison who had, in fact, committed crimes, admitted that they had committed crimes, and were on the same path that I saw that Norris and Calvin were on. And that was to be a good citizen, even if your community is the prison. And so I I realized, having represented several people that were released from prison, and in essence, I was doing reentry work as a defense lawyer, and I started an inner-city boxing gym, my husband and I did, where one of the young men that I had gotten out of prison who had been in for a good number of years started boxing. So, of course, he asked us to help him. But before we knew it, we basically owned the boxing gym and all of the problems that went with it. And that's when I realized trying to do as much as we could to help this young man, there was no way that we could do it all for him. We couldn't recapture the time that had been in prison. We couldn't teach him the morals that he needed to learn. We couldn't educate him. We couldn't help him get his GED, all of those things. And then having been a prosecutor and a defense lawyer here and knowing my community, I knew that we needed to start reentry, not when people get out of prison, but we need to start sooner. We need to start in the schools. We need to start at home. But if that's not possible, then where can I offer some support and make this happen? And that's where it started with putting people in jail to go directly into a program. And uh, Judge Arthur Hunter, my co-creator from New Orleans, spoke with the warden out at Angola State Penitentiary, which is Louisiana State Penitentiary. And it's pretty known for being, um, you know, a a life sentence prison. And it's it's been considered brutal and infamous for many years. And, And he agreed to our idea and allow us to use lifers that are doing life sentences to be the mentors for young men that we put in the program. That's what we did. Can you tell me a bit about uh, the job training aspects that you have there for people in the program? Sure. When I put someone in the program, they are given a social mentor, an educational mentor, and a vocational mentor. And what they do is we have approximately 20 different groups of trades that they can work with, anything from welding to auto mechanics to auto body, plumbing, sheetrock, horticulture, let's see, electrical, quite a few. And what they do is 
we have nationally certified the lifers that are teaching these programs. And these guys study. They have to get their GED, first of all. That's part of a condition of the program. And then they go into like HVAC and refrigeration, auto mechanics, and then they work and study under a prisoner who is a lifer, who is a mentor, and then they learn to get to an area where they are certified nationally, recognized certification, at two levels. Before the prison mentors recommend that a mentee is to be released back to my supervision, they have to pass not only the certification, their GED, but 100 hours of pre-release training. And, And basically what they're doing is they're teaching them and hoping and working with them for a moral change as well as uh, educational. Well, and if you can tell me about that a bit, um, I know when I was speaking with Calvin Duncan previously, he had mentioned talking to these young men about how to make changes and understand that many of the young men in the prison are black and there's certainly a lot of racism in our country and talking about how to Yes, acknowledge that, but also not to let feelings about that get in your way in terms of success and just those life skills. I mean, it sounded to me very much like things that your father might tell you in life, but he'd mentioned that unfortunately a lot of these men didn't have fathers and never had any kind of father-son relationship that was healthy until they got into your program. I know his comment was... um, It's kind of sad, you know, you don't have a father figure until you go to Angola. That's right. And interestingly, the gentlemen in uh, the prisoners that are the mentors in Angola were in the same boat. They didn't have father figures, but they have now become father figures to those entering the program. And because they have succeeded and become successful at the prison as trustees and more educated or ministers, Uh, because there is quite a bit of all of that's allowed at Angola. So for people that are sentenced to life, that warden and and our Department of Corrections has allowed them to uh, still excel and do things to be a success even in prison. And that's why I thought those were the things that we could use um, to help these young people, because an inmate can speak to another inmate much better than a white judge named White can. Mm-hmm. And while I ha- may have street cred or well, who's whatever, a woman still from the, a yes, yeah, of course. from a middle class background, yeah. So it provides a whole new realm, and and that's why I use people that were in prison to come to my meetings now with all of the reentrants that are in my program. They I meet with them once a month, and I have people from the community, and I have employers, and I have people that I've sentenced and are now out of prison. They come and join in the support of the people that come in and are being supervised by my court. Are there any And they plans? also are the ones that can really call bull on anybody that's, you know, saying, oh, I can't get this done or that done. Are there any plans to offer something like this for the, your women's prison? We're hoping to as soon as possible. Angola State Penitentiary has like 6,300 inmates, but it's also on a very large piece of land. And because of cutbacks in, in our state going, wow, we've incarcerated people for too long, let's close down some prisons, they then moved some people, a lot of inmates, to uh, Angola. The women's prison, we only have 
you know, one large state prison and then some smaller ones. It's, it's mostly spacing space and we want to do this and plan to do it. And I'm working with the secretary, the department of corrections so that we can do more of this. I have the impression that this program doesn't cost the state a lot of money. Is that correct? That's correct. In fact, Interestingly, the Louisiana State Penitentiary has a inmate rodeo, and the proceeds from that rodeo are what is supporting our program. But what it does to support the program is just pay for the, some of the testing for the high school equivalency test, pays for the certifications. A lot of the equipment that we've received has been donated from large companies, unions, individuals, for them to work with the different from welding and refrigeration, electrical shop, all of the small engine, those things have been donated and with the tools. The books and other things are basically items that would be in the prison anyway. You were still going to house and feed these inmates and give them the medical care and the food. So we're just redirecting what they do in their hours that they're awake during their time. It's time better spent. Okay. Can you give me a sense, perhaps anecdotally, what is the success rate for people who finish the program and are released? Very high. We have had, I accept in Orleans, we were the first two, uh, we were the first parish, because we're parishes in Louisiana, so the counties, we were the first parish to start the reentry program. And I accept cases from 11 sections of court. My colleague, Judge Hunter, accepts from his section of court. I have, like right now, 32 people that are pending in Angola because there's different segments. I sentence them, they go into the program. So if they complete the program at Angola and they're not removed, then they make it to me. Then once they make it to me and then they're successful, then you have another level of success. I'm working with about 20 people right now, and I've had... 20 actively on supervision. I have about four that have been rearrested for significant issues that I have removed them from the program. And then the prison does it. Their removals are different. Their removals are for prison reasons, you know, either a, a write up for maybe a sex offense or a smoking weed or prison offenses. So they remove them from the program. I have nothing to do with that portion. Then when they complete the program at Angola, which is anywhere from 24 months upward, then they come back to me. And then, as I said, I've had several that have been rearrested or um, have had heroin problems and can't, you know, get off the heroin. But our success rate seems to be in the numbers way above 60, 70, and 80%. And because when we started this program, it's sort of a pipeline effect. I have to put people in the pipeline to get them through the first portion out of Angola to then come to me. So it's different levels of success rates. We also initially had people that I would put them in the program and they would be released or go to work release or they would go out on parole. So we've had to adjust how the sentencing is handled. So this has been quite a, uh, <laughs> quite a work in progress. For people who, when they do successfully finish the program and are released and are successful with that, mm-hmm. are there some common habits of these men that you see repeatedly? Yes. In particular, we find that having been incarcerated and gotten the support system, as I said, from a vocational, uh, religious, all these mentors, they have 
more support than they've probably ever had in their life. And when they're released and they come back and now they're trying to get on their feet and a lot of the gentlemen have the same issues. They don't have a driver's license or their driver's license is suspended because they had tickets that have to be paid for. They have child support issues many times. They need to get a job, but now, of course, they're a felon and people don't want to give a felon a job. They need a place to live, so they will usually, if they were not already in a relationship, they get in a relationship so that they can have a place to live with someone. And then they're trying to go to work. And now they have money in their pocket, maybe. Now they're back in the same community, so they're trying not to return to drugs or the same old, same old. And they're trying to remember everything they've learned and put it to work, and they don't feel as well surrounded and protected as they actually did in the prison when everyone was working on rehabilitation as a group. Because we, we use a holistic approach in the prison. We use a holistic approach outside of the prison, but this program has no funding, so I have no staff. It's strictly me and a probation officer that's assigned to reentry, and I need more hand-holding for the support of 20 or so that I'm seeing on a monthly basis. I have the impression that for some of the people who enter the program, some of it's a fair amount who are repeaters, and it's just kind of for stupid stuff. That they, I don't mean stupid and that they shouldn't be there, but just dumb stuff people do to get put in prison. So it's not like they just broke, you know, get sent to prison the first time. It's guys who've had a fair amount of screw-ups, but nothing serious. Well, everyone but it is serious the for their lives. Right, because they're now in a posture to be multiple billed or charged as a habitual offender, which means their yeah. sentence is going to be longer and flatter. And when I say flat, I mean without good time release or even parole eligibility, perhaps. But the people that go into our program are people that are charged with nonviolent crimes. They're non-sex charges, and the sentence has to be 10 years or less to be considered in the program, and they have to not be multiple billed. And our prosecutor multiple bills on a regular basis every day, and that's something that he agrees not to multiple bill them for them to go into the program, but reserves the right to multiple bill them if they should fail out. And there have been in the, in recent weeks two or three people from the court that were flunked out at the prison level, and now the prosecutor is going to multiple bill them. So this is a real last ditch offer for some people. If you do the program, get out, screw up, go back in, could you go back in the program? Well, it depends on the screw up, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> a nonviolent sort of screw up. sorting through that. <laughs> it's up to the court to make a decision on what we're going to do with someone. I have, you know, as I said, revoked a few people. And then others I've put into treatment if they're having a drug problem or a different kind of treatment or a different kind of housing. So this is not something that it is a attempt at rehabilitation and to work with holistically the individual and their problems. Do you have a sense of approximately what percentage of your people who come to the program have some sort of addiction? Oh, 95%. Oh, okay. And you mentioned that a lot of people who've come through the program and are successful, they help them when they come out. Do you have strong ties with the recovery community in New Orleans as well? Okay. Yes, because I'm looking for referrals at all times, whether it be housing, employment. You know, if my friends own a business, I've leaned on them to give uh, an an ex-offender a job. (laughs) If my Mm -hmm. friend is a psychiatrist, I'm like, you know, could you help with this person? So 
whatever they need, we're trying to find the right place for them because there are some really great success stories coming out of this. And, and you know, to watch just in my court when the Calvin Duncans and the Daniel Tapias and the Samuel Bells, all people that I have sentenced or, or represented, help another one and say, you're not taking this serious and this judge is trying to help you and you, you've got to rethink this or you need to realize your life is going to be thrown away. And that makes a huge difference. I'm curious, when you're asking friends of businesses to hire these men, what kind of responses do you get? I get uh, no's, and I, but I get some yeses too. Mm-hmm. So I don't mind. I have a friend that hired someone and the young man called last week to say, I don't have a ride to work. Well, that's not something you call your judge about. You get yourself to work. And a lot of this is just learning what other people that have, that have worked and have a history of working and have a history of maybe even family that says, you know, this is how you're supposed to properly behave in the community and in the work world that just don't know these things. I'm curious, too, when people who are facing sentencing, when they hear about this program, is there like, what is there a common reaction? What do they, t- for people who might be able to be in this program, what do they think when they hear about it? Well, Angola was not some place that people want to go to. And they're a little afraid that the program is at Angola. But they also realize if they could get a job and get out of their world and have an opportunity, many of them are extremely interested. I have had, you know, lawyers that are not interested in their clients doing this because they're afraid their clients will fail. And then there'll be multiple bills because, you know, the prosecutor's withholding that you know, as part of the plea agreement. Well, if, if that's the case, then I have to trust the prosecutor or the lawyer's advice on that because if they don't think their client will make it, I don't, I don't want losers in the program. I want people that want to change their life and be successful and do something different than what the same old. Right. Is there something now that you've been doing this a bit is there anything that says this kind of, you just get a feeling, yeah, this person can do this and change their life? Oh, yeah, because I do the interviews before I accept them into the program. And a lot of that is from my experience, you know, spending time representing people and knowing this community and knowing, just knowing, you know, sometimes it's gut, sometimes it's the knowledge, sometimes it's the people that I see them in court with, sometimes it's the way they respond to authority or don't respond to uh, their lawyers even and their willingness to do things like come to court and drug screen or if they're not, if they're in jail, their position on, you know, I want, my life needs to change and I know you have this program. So yes, it it becomes almost a sixth sense to figure out who I think can be successful and who, who wants a chance. One of the things when I was interviewing people about you for your profile for the journal, multiple people told me that one of the things that was most unique about you and they would say, well, she's this white lady, but she really <laughs> takes the time to care and understand about these guys in prison. She actually cares about us. And it's not, you know, I mean, it knows how to talk to us. I don't know if you feel that way about yourself or not, but for someone who wants to work with people who are in the prison system, and if they're a white lady like you and me, um, <laughs> what <laughs> advice would you give them how to truly relate 
with clients or people in front of them and, you know, really care about them and give them that impression that you do really care about them and you want the best for them? I don't know what you would tell somebody. You just have to care. (laughs) It's just something that you either care or you don't. And people know that. And I've, you know, I've never been one to mince words. And I'm the first one to say, hey, I'm a white lady trying to help you. If a white lady cares about you, then why don't you care about yourself? And, Mm -hmm. you know, just some of those things. And I've never, I've never ignored any issue that's been right there. I was fascinated with the first inmate that I met as much as that inmate probably was with me. And I, and I think it's an, an interesting dichotomy because, you know, it's not like I've had relatives to go to prison and my goal was to always be a prosecutor and put bad people away. But I also know that people, no matter what color or whatever their funk is, that if they are good people, then they should be cared about and helped. And I think everybody should get a shot. And I send people to prison every day. (laughs) So (laughs) I like being able to help people. Judge, that's everything that I have to ask for you today. Did you want to add anything else? I think not. I just appreciate you all shining some light on our little program here. And we're hoping that it's going to increase and and expand. Thank you so much for your time. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and you've been listening to the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered.